Thank you. Next lecture is by Dr. Hong Pong Tuminat on GI bleeding. Yeah, right? You guys are getting better, better at pronouncing my name. Hi, so I'm Dr. Hong Pong Tuminat, and for the students that some people I have not met, so you can call me Dr. Hoon, Dr. H, Dr. Ying, but all the residents should call me Dr. Hoon Pong Tuminat. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> So today, I like to talk about just to give you guys some idea what's going on about a, um, emergency practice in uh, the patient with the GI bleeding, and we'll go over just a couple of literatures to see if there's anything different from what we're doing. The objectives of today' lecture is for you guys to get some ideas how to differentiate between the upper and lower GI bleeding, and then management of GI bleeding, and also some um, review of current literatures. A little bit of background, um, GI bleeding costs about 400,000 hospital admission per year, and that costs about just two billion annually from your tax and you know whatever you pay to the government. Um, about five to ten percent of the peptic ulcer bleeding is, is mortality rate from the peptic ulcer bleeding is about five to ten percent, and then upper GI bleeding is about in 90 episodes per thousand visit. Um, the lower GI bleeding is a little bit lower. It's only 20 episodes, but it's very, when it bleeds, if you've ever seen one, it's very severe. Although, as Dr. Burns said, it's intermittent, but when the period that they bleed, it's actually, you know, it's, they can get exsanguinated and die from just that one episode. All right, case number one. Um, well, I'll do, I will designate the person who answered later. So you have 45-year-old male complaining of vomiting blood for two days. It's kind of look like this little guy. A little bit chubby, um, short. We're not talking about airway, so there's nothing to be concerned about. He's no neck. Um, his vitals are as listed. Blood pressure is 120 over 80. Heart rate is 98. Reserve 12. So first year. Max. So, what would you like to do? Is this guy stable or non-stable? I don't know if he's stable. I only have one to the Is this normal vitals or not vitals? <laughs> yes. Good job! <laughs> Quick order. They are unremarkable vitals. Okay, what would you like to do? Um, I want, let's see, access first. Well, okay, ABC is, he's, I assume he's stable so far? I oh, I can't tell. <laughs> no, he's talking. Okay. Talk. Airway open. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that means he's breathing as well. Um, and he's got a heart rate, and he's on a monitor, yes? Yes, we put him on a monitor. Okay, next I want access. Okay, so he got two large bore IV access. Okay, and uh, then I would like to miss that. Okay, so his hemoglobin is, you know, 13. Okay, good. Um, so then I just begin my history. Yeah, what would you like to know? What do you like to ask? Has this, uh, has this ever happened before? Or, okay, tell me about your vomiting blood for two days. What happened? Circumstances surrounding all that. Um, I just vomiting blood. 
has this ever happened before? No. Okay. What, and what were you doing before you started vomiting blood? Were you drinking or drunk? Just, you know, eating my, f just regular day, I didn't do anything much different, watching TV, eating pizza. Any other symptoms that are bothering you besides just vomiting blood, such as difficulty breathing, chest pain, belly pain? No. Okay. Are you pooping blood? Um, I don't know. Uh, what color are your poops? It's brown. Okay. Any black poops? Um, I don't think so. And that's quite interesting to me when I I don't know if it's just me or maybe my English is not that good, but when I say poops to like adult or like. Elder belief Haitian is kind of sounds weird. I don't know. I feel like it's for the kids. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> I want to call it stools because, uh, especially with uh, people, we have a very diverse population. <laughs> we have a very diverse population, and not everyone understands what stool is. When we say poop, everyone seems to understand. That's it. so I true. That's true. It's just my observation. All right. Anything else, though, you want to know in order to manage this guy? Uh, yeah. So you asked about the previous bleeding. Yeah, and past medical history. What would you like to know about the past medical history? Does he have any medical problems? Um, he said that he's been drinking, and he, the doctor told him once that he has cirrhosis. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's quite important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else? No. Okay, no. Has he had surgery before? No. Okay. But uh, when was the last time you saw the doctor? I can't recall. Okay. Exam. Can I move on to the exam? So that's just an example of. I'm sorry, I don't want. I didn't okay. mean to put you on the spot. But when you obtain history for the GI bleeding, okay. even though they say it's a, you know, it's vomiting blood, you want to know how much and how long it's been bleeding. Max was trying to get to that. So like it's been bleeding for two days. But can you tell me more? You know, like how is it? How many episodes that you have the bleeding? How much did you bleed? Was this a bright red blood, or is it like a black, you know, like a black um, coffee ground blood? Is it a cup, or is it like a whole gush of blood on the back in the bedpan, or it's just a little bit of streak of blood, right? Because that will change how you will approach the patient and how emergent it would be. You want to know, like Max asked, if there's any previous bleeding, and then one of that, like Dr. Burns mentioned before about NSAIDs and aspirin, especially in a in elderly patient, right? So this increased risk of peptic ulcer as well. And also if the patient on any anticoagulant medications. Previous surgery. I put in here aortic repair. Why is that important? Ahmed. Uh, because you could oh, I don't know. Um, there could have been some post op no. Yeah it's gonna be there could be some post op. A fistula. Yeah, so caused, it can cause a fistula, and that can be said with the GI bleeding as well. Um, past medical history is important, as you can see. Cirrhosis, that will differentiate you between the variceal bleed and non-variceal bleed, right? Alcoholism or any bleeding disorder. Regular exam. I put this in, although I kind of realize that sometimes we don't do it, but if the patient come in with the complaint of GI bleed, I would encourage you all to do the regular exam. I don't know if any senior faculty has any different opinions, like if it's not important, but I would encourage you to do it anyway. It can tell you about the severity of the bleeding, and it probably can tell you, um, and I think that you, you probably can say whether it's actually the vomiting blood is real or not. Sometimes it's depend on how long it's been going on. I think if you got coffee grounds in the bucket, it becomes less 
less important to do the rectal, but if there's any, only a history of GI bleed and you haven't seen it, then one way to find it is to do that. Yeah, and, um, and also some associated symptoms, because you want to know what the severity of blood loss, and also you, you want to um, get some associated symptoms to help you with, to guide you with the diagnosis. So this is a study that um, they look into, they try to differentiate, um, they look into like uh, predisposing factors, try to differentiate between upper and lower GI bleeding. And these are the characters that they're looking in. Look over here, it seems like if the patient is less than 50 years old, they're higher, they're likely to have peptic ulcer bleed. This is in the patient that come in with, you know, like upper GI bleed, that they're vomiting blood. Then if they're lower than 50 years old, um, the history of cirrhosis is not quite important. And then if they're using warfarin, that's quite important. That predicted we might have an upper GI bleed. Also, this one, if their BN creatinine ratio is more than 30, then they might have upper GI bleed. The fact that they have history of lower GI bleed or they have clots in the stool, that decreases the likelihood ratio of having upper GI bleed. This one comes from the same studies, actually look into the severity of the bleeding and it's kind of say the same thing that, you know, if, well, one, one more, they kind of add more of the physical exam. If the patient have a power rate of more than 100, then that shows, we already know, to show the patient is, the severity is high. Or they are in shock, or they have blood, or bright red blood in the nasogastric lavage, or they're hypotensive. The cutoff that they normally use is the hemoglobin less than 8, that they say is, the severity of the bleeding is pretty high. Also, if the patient is So how, to, how do we evaluate the severity of the bleeding, right? This is like basic, like a kind of like a trauma, blood loss kind of thing. The only thing that I, two things I remember from this chart is, is the heart rate above 100? That's class, class two, and that's 15 to 30. If the systolic blood pressure drop, below 90, that's class 3. And then the rest, you probably can figure it out. <laughs> I mean, right? Because you want to know, like, in the end of it, also you get a cut off, and then you know how much blood that the patient potentially lost, and then you can replace that. So this is a 15% of total blood loss. Do you guys know how, main, how much blood in, like, 70 kilos? Five liters. Five liter, right? 70 times 7. So one way I can remember this is if anybody knows how to, take, to keep scoring tennis, the three scores in tennis are 15, 30, 40, game over. Oh, no. <laughs> class one is up to 15% blood loss. Class two is up to 30% blood loss. Class three is up to 40% blood loss. And game over is class four. There you go. At the same time, you could be a juice and keep going. Could be. Yeah, yeah. 30, 40, game over. Well, this when you're fine. No, no blood loss. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, and then for the upper GI bleeding, your differential diagnosis is could be this is the most common one: peptic ulcer disease, gas, gastric erosion, viruses, and then you know like Mary Weiss tear, esophagitis, duodenitis. Or it could be like very extensive like this. You really want to go into it. So, the patient that you saw, 
got IV access on, on the monitor, has a hemoglobin of 13, and then you walk back, and then he looks very pale, and his blood pressure is 86 over 50. Now, um, you're the only first year. Alisa Ray, what do you want yes. to do? Um, is he getting fluids yet? That's good. <laughs> Let's give him some IV fluid. Um, How much? I'd like to start with giving him, wait, what did we, he doesn't have any heart problems, right? No. Yeah, okay, let's give him a liter. Okay. And then um, I'd like to get some repeat vitals. After we get that, I'd also like to call for some blood and get him typed and crossed and everything because we might be needing that. Okay. Um, so the, the nurse asked you, doctor, should we do NG lavage? Doctor, should we call TI to come and do immersion EGD? Should we put a patient on PPI? What should we do? So you started, you started right. So you're going to resuscitate the patient. Two large bore IV, oxygen, continuous monitor, blood transfusion. You might want to start the RIP protocol like Dr. BC said. Um, if they're vomiting blood profusely, then you need to consider manage the airway. Um, other labs should be sent. And then, like Dr. Burns mentioned before, in the elderly, this can be, you know, because they're bleeding a lot, they're causing them anemic, so they can have like cardiac ischemia or even stroke. So consider cardiac workup in the elderly as well. Remember that the RIP protocol is for people who are exsanguinating in front of you. It's not in anticipation of somebody exsanguinating in front of you. Just order blood sequentially, blood and fresh plasma. And platelet says you need it if somebody is moderately hemorrhaging. But if they're dying in front of you, then so the yeah, so the report hall is is come with the pack red cells and also the six, FFP six, 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 and, and one six units of pack red cells, six units of fresh frozen plasma, and one pilot. pack of platelets. Mm -hmm. so that's the report call. But use it when they're examining your product. All right. So the second question is: Should we do NG lavash? Yes, NG lavash. Wow. Did you see a bar? Blood? Just a history of vomiting blood. Do we rectalize him yet? Yeah. Yeah. He said yes. <laughs> um, we did not rectalize him. Okay, but we didn't do it because the resident didn't want to do it. But the nurse asked if it was in So one NGLAWAS and then. So there are a couple of studies that have been done. So first one is this study. So this study is done is done in a university-based veteran uh, medical center in uh, 632 patients that was admitted with a GI bleed. So basically they look back, it's a retrospective study, they look back in a patient that was diagnosed with a GI bleed from the endoscope. And then whether the patient come in with a hematochesia or melina but no hematemesis. And those patients got nasogastric aspiration or lavage, and then eventually got the scope. What they found is they found that is the, um, the NG lavage is actually not quite helpful in the patient that does not have hematemesis, but just present with the kind of like lower GI or melina. It's like a flip a coin. So it's like 50% of the patient that 
um, all the patients with the NGLR watch, 50% have lesion from the endoscope, and 50% does not have any lesion in the, from the endoscope. So you can argue whether you want to do it or not. If it's positive, I think it's helpful. If it's not, it's not helpful. But if GI or anyone said you must done it, then it's not really true. Um, and then this is the another study that's done. This study is actually look into the patient that got NG lavage. So this is from. Uh, I mean, it's from Boston, but I think this is also another retrospective study that they look into the patient that got NG lavage, and then they compare the outcome. So the patient, or the patient that have upper GI bleeding got NG lavage, and then they compare the group that got NG lavage and didn't get NG lavage, and they compare the outcome, and then they found that there's no different outcomes in terms of mortality, um, time to stop bleeding, and um, what's the other thing? thing is a length of stay. So there's no outcome in those three dimensions, but there is a significant different outcome in time to scope. So if you use NG lavage, I assume in the study, if it's, it's positive or bright red blood, then the GI will tend to come in and then do scope faster. But that doesn't change their mortality, their length of stay, and the, the time that to stop the bleeding. And also the, um, the transfusion. That EGDs can always be waited, can always wait till the next morning, and they could be admitted and hang out overnight and be done the next morning. Because if there's a difference in time, what did they mention? How long those time differences were? Was it like a 45-minute wait or a day wait? They did not mention that. So the the decision to for the jet to come and do uh -huh. the scope is is not. They don't have any protocol to say that when you need to come. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically whatever the GI prefer. Um, can you infer that? Well, the guidelines said that in the elderly patient or the patient with a high risk, you should get the scope done. In the peptic ulcer disease, you should get the scope done in um, 24, 48 hours for the high risk population. But for the regular, like, you know, young guy came in with the vomiting blood, possible um, peptic ulcer, then that can be wait. That can wait. Mm -hmm. So if they're actively bleeding? Then you definitely need to call the GI because that's the only way you're going to stop the bleeding, right? Okay. Is actively it, bleeding not the same as, as NG suctioning bright red blood? So if they're actively vomiting blood, then I think that is more than just NG lavage positive okay. for blood. I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not one to generally cut our consultants a lot of slack in terms of their ED response, but GI makes the argument that I almost buy that if the patient's <laughs> really sick, then they're probably, it's, it's difficult to sedate them and do the uh, endoscopy emergently. And if they're not really sick, then could it wait until morning, probably. So they, and I don't know whether I've just been called, colored by the culture or not, but they generally don't come screaming into the ED and do emergent endoscopy on patients, even if they're actively bleeding. Now, one, I've seen them do it a couple of times, and I don't know if it was convenient or whatever, but, but it's most of the time they do the endoscopy of them, either in their lab or in the ICU, not very frequently in the ED. The flip side of that is if you have a very tightly managed care population like Kaiser, the GI docs come in and do the scope in the ED, and if it's negative, they send them home. They don't even admit them because they're on call to do that, and they don't want to admit anybody else they have to. So yes, you can be really aggressive as a rule out, 
send them home, but for most hospitals that don't have that tightly managed care population, they generally do the scopes in the, in the lab the next morning or in the ICU. You know, usually we would need to be. And then, okay. and then I think then I have one question from one of my patients that I saw. So there's a patient coming to G, upper GI bleeding and then not actively bleeding, but has the evidence that we kind of, you know, believe that this is actually upper GI bleed. So GI said, admit to you because they want to do scope in the morning. But judging from the patient clinical and, you know, like how stable the patient is in the ED, just for that, I don't think the patient really need you like admission. Yeah. And they, they do that because they do the scope in the morning and they want them in a critical care setting when they do the scope. Well, sometimes they do it because is it a weekend? Because the GI lab is not open on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So they can't do the scope in the GI lab. But they can do it in the ED if they have to, right? They could come in. I'm just doing sometimes they'll say admit to the MICU because our GL labs close on the weekend and it's a Friday night and then we'll scope them in the ICU and then this one's a lower level. Okay. All right. What about so? So you guys know that the le the reason for getting G NG lavage is one is to prove is there any active bleeding or you know, it's, it's to prove that it's upper GI bleeding going on. The other reason that GI might ask you to do the, the NG lavage is that will help them if they're going to go in scope, so then you kind of help them clear their stomach and then they can see better. So there are study that come in. Um, I look into whether NG lavage versus, I think a little bit of advanced. So I think I'll be advanced my slide, sorry. So the NGL was to prove that upper GI bleeding or prevent aspiration of the blood. You can see how severe it is, and then that will help GI. Another study that, another question that comes is, GI will ask you, like, can you put the patient on IV erythromycin? And like I think Dr. BC mentioned before, that that will help the GI mortality and then motilities, and then that will help clear the secretion as well. So this is a study that done, and is just show that erythromycin actually decreases the scope time and um, is help with the um, risk scope. It decreases the risk scope rate as well. I don't know why it doesn't show up. Sorry, guys. It unadvanced. It advanced first, and then it unadvanced. There you go. <laughs> so when compared between NG lavage and erythromycin IV, is um, they found that there is a decrease um, in the, the time during the endoscope and also the decrease of re-bleeding, decrease of transfusion, but those numbers is not significant compared between the two. So basically, either one is fine if they want that effect to help them with the scope. Proton pump inhibitor. So, it's, I mean, it's been proved, as we know, that it decreased the re-bleeding. It's helped surgery to control the bleeding. It decreased the in-hospital mortalities and length of hospital stay. So basically, yes, for the proton pump inhibitor. Do you guys know the dose? 80 loading and then 8. Yeah, 80 and 8. 
So 80 and 80. 80 bolas and 8 per hour. So, and then the next question is when, like Ahmed was asking. Yeah, I think it's the one that titrate. So in terms of like when do you need to get the immersion EGD, is there's a risk score that GI has been using, was developed by this guy and his team, Mr. Blankford. And this is basically the criteria. Do we really need to remember this? Uh, probably not. So I would just remember the risk of that the patient might not need emergent EGD. Basically, if, if WN is less than 6.5, hemoglobin is more than 13 in, in male and more than 12 in female, if the blood pressure is fine and it pulses later than 100. Basically, if the patient with two hernias vital size looks stable to you, right? And then the BUN is not crazy high. Then you probably can wait and admit the patient and then get the scope in the morning. But that's different from like, are you gonna call the GI consult? Because you're gonna have to call them, let them know that, hey, there's a patient that needs scope in the morning, right? But this can wait. You don't have to really place them to come in to the hospital to do it. So with these four criteria, then you have 99% sensitivities of that the patient don't need emergent EGD, or even if they do the emergent or non-emergent, there's no difference in terms of results or outcome. So this is just another study that said that you know, if the patient have hemodynamic instability, then they give four score, four points. If they have flesh blood in the um, NG tube, they give six point. If the hemoglobin is low, then eight, they get four. And if WBC more than 12,000, I think it's just like a reactive um, indicators, then they give three. So if the score is more than 11, then there's present of active bleeding, then that endorses you to get emergent EGD. But if its score is, low, is below seven, then that can wait. Like, what about eight to 10? Then you can use your own consideration. <laughs> that's a good question. I actually didn't mention that in this study. Um, I think that's kind of cut off. So basically, I think basically you just, I probably would be more, um, you know, concentrate on this one as it below seven. Then I'm like, okay, that can be wait. The first one seems simple, um, simpler than the other one. Then that's just a picture of like active bleeding ulcer. 
Alright, so we just went over the non-variative upper GI bleeding. So basically your treatment will be resuscitation. Injila Vajanat. Not quite, it's like a flippercoise. And then what other things you can do? In the non cell, so if you're thinking of peptic ulcer, then you would do the proton pump in inhibitor. Um, and then the criteria for emergent endoscope is, you know, you can use either one of the criteria. You can use Brandfort's criteria, and then you, when you talk to GI, they'll be like, wow, you are totally medicine. Case number two, about second year. Brock? It's a 45-year-old male with cirrhosis. So if you have this patient in your department, what would be um, the questions that you would like to know, or would be the like what do you like to know? So he's a little hypotensive. So right away, I just want to know if he's actually vomiting blood right now, and, and what quantity of blood he's been vomiting for how long? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's been vomiting blood, he said, for like two or three days. And it's maybe like a cup full of blood, bright red, for him. It's frank blood. It's not, it's not vomit mixed with blood. It's flank blood. Okay. Has he ever thrown up blood before? Yes, in the past. Okay. Has he ever had to be scoped or had a repair? Yeah, the doctor told him that he has like what he calls like a bit of V, like very sales bathing, okay? No. So basically, your history is going to get toward the same thing when you approach upper GI bleeding. But to to consider whether this is variable bleeding or non-variable bleeding is you want to know whether this patient have any significant liver disease, any history of variable bleeding, alcoholism because some people just keep drinking and don't know that they have liver disease, or if they have any abnormal LFTs. In the past. We know that the patient actually died. The patient with the various of bleeding, they die from the bleeding itself. But nowadays, because we are so good at it as an emergency physician, so nowadays they die from the infection, from the complications, and from, from the complication from the bleeding, and also complication from the cirrhosis disease itself. So your treatment will gear toward that as well as resuscitation in the acute bleeding. So how do you manage the various of bleeding, right? Resuscitation. So we're going to talk a little bit about optimal volume replacement, clotting factors, platelets. We're going to talk a little bit about vasoactive agents. I never order one, but in the literature, it sounds pretty good and seems like it's been using in a GI. I don't know if any faculties, like a senior faculty ever order or have seen the GI order one. Yeah? Yeah. Yes, so that's, that's a very good point. The, like Dr. Kinney just mentioned, you cannot assume that this is going to be another variable bleeding. And then um, some of the statin, octreotide. And then the last thing we're going to touch base, uh, we're going to talk about is about antibiotics, what to give and why we have to give it. So when you resuscitate a patient with the cirrhosis, 
that come in with the upper GI bleeding, and you think that it might be from the portal hypertension that causing varicose bleeding. One of the one of the studies they found this is a pretty old study, and they tried to find if they do any study in the human, which is going to be very difficult to do. They found that you do not want to over resuscitate them, like you want to. It's kind of like when you manage the AAA, um, rupture AAA. So you want to make sure that their blood pressure is about a hundred. Because cirrhosis patients, they actually don't, they normally don't have high blood pressure anyway. So you don't want to overshoot and, and keep the blood pressure higher. That will increase the bleeding. And also, you want to replace the packed red cells. But your goal is not like 10 or 12. Your goal will be at 8, unless that patient have cardiac risk factors. Like in the elderly with the, you know, um, MI in the past, then you want to keep it a bit higher. And then you want to make sure that the heart rate comes down to about 100. It doesn't have to be like 80 like normal people. So basically you resuscitate them, but do not overly resuscitate them because that will cause more bleeding. So just, just a quick comment on that. We've talked twice today about not over resuscitating patients in the journal club last month or so. We talked about penetrating trauma and don't resuscitate them until they get to the OR with a finger in the dike. And those are all fine principles. But in practice, it's a very dynamic process where the patient's actively bleeding and you don't know how much, and you've got the logistics of trying to get blood up and resuscitation fluids and access and all of that stuff. My experience is that we more often get caught with our pants down under resuscitating than not, even with our best intentions. So I would be cautious, you know, if you meet, if you meet these goals and you're good and you got more blood sitting at the bedside, you got good access, and you're ready to go, okay. But don't take a nonchalant approach because you seem to be metastable for the moment because you're more likely to have the next blood pressure be 60 over health and you're behind the ball. And you also need to look at the patient, not just the numbers. Is this person mentating? Is their, are their skin signs good? Or are they diaphoretic and altered? In which case, you're not resuscitating them optimally, no matter mm -hmm. if you these numbers or not. Mm -hmm. When you're resuscitating these cirrhotics with blood, is it a good idea to start them? Probably if they're if they're bleeding out of the varices or something else, they probably have a coagulopathy anyway. So I mean more normally we might, you know, give somebody two units of pack cells before we think of FFP. I think I think we FFP early. I don't know if you did the research, but Yeah, so they actually recommend to start FFP earlier and clotting factors as well. But that in the patient that documented that have various bleed and or like cirrhosis or have in the past that you can check that this coagulopathy, you know. The other thing about coagula about the INR is it doesn't change day to day. I see a lot of people guy bled last month had an INR at one point six. Let's get another one today. It doesn't change. It's still gonna be one point six. So you need to rely on the old one and not check the new one or you can act on the old one and, and get the new one if you have to, but but it's not like, you know, potassium that changes or a BUN or creatinine that changes day by day. So whatever your INR is, if you've got a rotten liver, you've got a rotten liver. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is the vasoactive agents. So normally, at least for what I heard in the past, is we've been using like vasopressin, and there's a new vasoactive agent called telepressin. It's been using in Europe and approved. Um, that they say they claim it has less side effect of peripheral intestinal and cardiac ischemia. But if you ever seen any GI using this, you're going to have to watch for the hyponatremia because this 
this highly associated with the fertility present. They recommend to give basal, to start vasoactive agents um, right away and then continue for five days. They said this will control the bleeding um, in 48 hours. Uh, they can control about 80% of the patients. So one thing that you should ask when you call for GI consult for the various possible various bleeding, like you, you, do you want us to start on this medication as well? The antibiotics. Why do we need to start a patient on antibiotics? Just like we. Hmm? It's actually, it's actually like we saw in the, another graph that the patient later on died from infection more than just the bleeding itself because we resuscitated them so well. So this antibiotic is preventing from that. Most common cause of the infection in the various of bleeding is the SBP, UTI, and pneumonia. So normally quinolone IV will be sufficient, but if the patient is, have a higher risk, like they have symptoms of ascites, jaundice, they look very cachectic to you, or they have encephalopathy, then you would want to start them on ceftriaxone instead of quinolone. There's um, a question also whether, because the GI bleeding is also associated with hepatic encephalopathy, so should we start a patient on um, lactulose right away, right? So there's no study on that that prove that work or prevent the hepatic encephalopathy in, in the GI bleeding. So. I like this one. They went birth today and then run like hell. <laughs> so the last case, how about Amit? So this is a 65-year-old male, complaints of bloody bowel movement, vitals are 100 over 70, pulse 100, heart rate 16, heart rate of 16 a minute. Oh, um, um, respiratory rate, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be scary. <laughs> that should be sick immediately. Yeah. So basically, you have a little bit old look. You know, on the old side, patient coming in complaining of bloody bar movement. Have anyone ever seen this kind of patient in the ED? Yeah, quite common, right? And then, so what did you really want to know when you approach the bloody bar movement? Um, I would kind of treat it similarly to how I would treat blood coming out the other end, how much and how frequent. Is okay. It frank, is it mixed in? Probably ask about how long they've had, like black stools, if they've had any before. Mm -hmm. Have they ever had an upper GI bleed? Mm-hmm. Because um, this still could be upper or lower GI, you're not exactly sure yet. Yeah, and that's it's Absolutely right. And one more question that I probably asked and tried to identify whether this lower GI bleed is actually a real one that you mean it can cause from um, diverticulosis, angiodysplasia, or the other stuff that inside in, in the bowel, or it's just the lower, very lower GI bleed from like hemorrhoids or anal fissures and all that. And that you can differentiate from history and physical exam, basically. So just be mindful of that. And that will change, totally change your management. I'm sorry? Nothing. <laughs> so the differential for the lower HI bleeding, as Ahmed was mentioned, Ahmed was mentioned that upper HI bleeding is the number one. 
diverticulosis, angiodysplasia, dysplasia, and other than that is the disease of the old, like cancer, polyps, um, rectal disease. This is we probably not that much concerned if we can prove the patient have like hemorrhoid or anal fissure. Then okay, have a good day, and then you know follow up, whatsoever. So the question is, if the patient come in with a lower GI bleed, how can you tell that this is real lower GI bleed or this is probably upper, and then it just you know show as a lower GI bleed? So this is also a bunch of study that's done is actually retrospective study, which is kind of annoying. That <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's either some IRB protocol that not approved or. It's kind of limitation of this study. So this is also another retrospective study that done in 225 patients that um, they look into, they try to find the ED predictors for the patient that have upper GI bleed that come in no hematemesis. So basically the patient come in with other symptoms but not vomiting blood. And like when you say that they actually probably have upper GI bleed. So as you can see, this is our other criteria or other factors that they found that it could be predict that patient have upper GI bleed. Black stool, and then um, age less than 50 years old. This is what we talked about before. And then history of lower GI bleed is decrease the likelihood of having upper GI bleed. Um, hematocrit rate less than 30 or hemoglobin less than 10, and then being male also increased risk of upper GI bleed as well. It is something to like guide you because I don't think, I don't really think when you see the patient there will be a cutoff that, oh, if your patient blah, 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 then this is totally upper GI bleed and then, you know, do not have to consider lower GI bleed. What's the odds ratio if you place an NG2 to get bright red blood? One, one, one thousand. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. Or even if the patient just like coming vomiting blood, then you probably know that's a good GI bleed. So that's all I'm going to trying to endorse that G NG lavage in the patient. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you just like try to prove that it's inside. And then actually, lavage are not in the patient that come in not vomiting blood, but have like melina or hematochesia. At least three studies that I found and um, said different things about whether lavage the patient or not. The first one we already talked about. The first one is, is the, um, did we talk about that? So this is the meta-analysis one that it said do not recommend NG lavage in the patient because it's too low sensitivity. It's like a flipping a car, basically. The second one, this one, is a prospective study is actually done, and they actually recommend doing NG lavage because they said that they found 10% of upper GI bleeding. So they think, they think that's good enough, like significant enough to do NG lavage if you find 10% of patients with that positive study. And then the last one is kind of like, you know, in between, oh, uh, if it's positive, it helps, is it negative, it doesn't, help, doesn't mean anything. Basically, I cannot give you the final conclusion whether to do the, the NG lavage or not. Well, I think it all 
flies on what Dr. Langdorf said. I mean, it's a high specificity, but it's a really low sensitivity. So mm -hmm. are you going to put a painful, do a painful procedure in the emergency department that is only correct 10% of the time, potentially? And I mean, you know, having said that, and to think of if we drop it in and then there's blood in the NG tube, would that change the management? Like, if the, would that change the GI will come in right away? It's probably not really in this institution anyway, that, at least from what I know. It changes my management. I upgrades them from whatever level of care I was planning before to a higher level Thank of you. care when they're actively bleeding. It makes me type and cross them more quickly. It makes me consider if fresh frozen plasma. It makes me call GI right away as opposed to perhaps delaying. I don't know. Okay. Be more concerned about the patient. That may be the minority opinion. So, as as you can see, it really depends on whenever you go out and practice, then you're going to have to develop your own judgment. And then it's also, I think that bring Dr. Keenick's comments that how sick the patient really is, and then you know when how fast you should act on the patient as well. So for the lower GI bleeding, this is kind of the guideline for the management. So if the hemodynamic stable then the patient can have colonoscopy, um, colonoscope later on. If you call GI with a lower GI bleeding that proved the lower GI bleeding and not hemorrhoids or anal fissure, then the GI will say, well, admit the patient and then we'll scope in the morning. Um, if it's not stable, then obviously you're going to try to stabilize the patient. And if you can do that, then they might consider to do scope later on. Another, another um, modality that they can do is the patient can go to um, the IR and do like um, get the angiography and do the embolization if the bleeding is really bad. So the take home. There's some literature on outpatient management of GI bleed. Did you come across? Um, I have not looked into that perspective. So I reviewed a couple of articles recently for journal launch where hemodynamically stable mild GI bleeds with close follow up, obviously in the category where you're going to do the study, say the next day could be managed as outpatients. So in addition to the question of do they need the ICU or telemetry of the floor, there could also be a possibility that they can have outpatient problems. Mm -hmm. So did they say whether like mild GI bleed, what, what, how do they define that? Or is it just from the history? In they did. I don't remember all the details, but you know, dynamically stable, obviously having close follow-up reliable patient. OK, cool. I'll look into that. I'll add to my lecture next time. So take home point, um, I'll, I'll cross that. So NG tube is um, providers dependent. It does have some benefit for the for the management. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just um, I just have a bad experience with NG tube ones that I was trying to put in when a patient with upper GI bleed, and then he's tacky up to like 150. So every time I touch the NG tube and try to put it in, he's tacky up to 150. So I'm like, okay. And people can ask for it. I mean, it's, it's not a benign procedure. And then aggressive resuscitation for the GI bleeders, but. Don't overdo it. So like, like if you're going to give blood, give some, and then re-evaluate the patient. Not just like, don't just order like six units of blood and then walk away and then like, oh, come back to the patient, hemoglobin 14, then you think that's great. 
This is not great. Antibiotics in various of bleeding. Quinolones, if it's complicated or high risk, then you're giving ceftriaxone. And then constantly rapid patient. So these are questions. Yes? How come you guys don't do questions? 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 Oh, the student doesn't have to do that. <laughs> Good? And then the second one. Check audit apply. Yes? This is the tennis rules of Dr. Langdorf. 